no, it really yes. does. You know, I mean, we were we were definitely laughing about Trump a while ago, and it's it's so not funny anymore. <laughs> Hello, my name is Declan Deneen, welcome to Checkpoints. This is a show about video games, the people who play them and the people who make them. Each episode, a guest on the show talks about the games that have shaped their life in one way or another. Games that have inspired them, games that have forged connections, and games that have soothed wounds. My guest on today's show is Jeff Green. Um, I'm very excited to have Jeff on the show. He was one of the when I first started doing the show, he like I made like a long list of, of people I'd like to have on, and Jeff was one of the first names on on the list. And this is one of those weird ones. This is kind of like if you're already familiar with Jeff, which I imagine a lot of you are, you'll be very excited about this because he was such a he was one of the first kind of voices, you know, literally and figuratively in in sort of video game uh, journalism, I suppose, or video game writing, certainly, um, because he as the the host of GFW Radio on the, the now defunct... Is it defunct? I don't know. The the old one-up network. Um, was one of the very first video game uh, podcasts. And it was certainly one of the first I listened to. You know, you, everyone everyone that I knew kind of that, that started getting into podcasts, I remember thinking, like, this is this is a nonsense. Why would you sit around and, and listen to people talk about games? But uh, once I started listening, then suddenly, you know, you realise how special it, it is and can be. And and the hundreds and hundreds of video game podcasts that now exist replicating that that sort of format of of allowing the listener to be you know the 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 silent protagonist around the table with all these people is, is very exciting and gfw was was always kind of the uh the kind of the the naughty sort of stepchild version of you know the the one-up show the or the sorry one-up yours the, the flagship show and it was that kind of odd mix of uh anarchism but also like really genuinely insightful discussions about games which i mean really up until that point didn't as much as you know some of us may have had friends that we would talk like that with or especially at that point forums had become established so there would be these long-form discussions to hear kind of i don't know like grown grown men and women sitting around talking about video games in in a passionate way and in a way that wasn't trivializing them you know it's it's I think that you know they were they were genuine uh, trailblazers, and Jeff is just such a lovely guy, and he's had such a, an interest in life and career in games. This, this is a a brilliant chat. Um, I should warn you that there were there are some audio issues. I think for about the first five minutes, they're kind of a bit bad, so you, maybe you'll skip past it. I don't know. I mean, it's not unlistenable, but there's like real odd kind of pops. Um, I apologize. I've done my best with the audio. It's the best I can do. After after five minutes, it it's pretty much fine. Um, so you know you can listen listen at your your pleasure. Um, I don't know why I said that. Uh, as always, if you'd like to get in touch with the show, you can email it's checkpointspodcast at gmail dot com or at checkpoints show on Twitter or forward slash checkpoints podcast on Facebook. It's very important to have consistent branding. Uh, you can also follow me if you want. I'm at Declan Deneen D E C L A N D I N E N. If you enjoy the show, then please do rate and review it on iTunes or tell a friend or tweet about it or whatever whatever it is necessary. It is, it is genuinely a big help to the show. It helps to grow the audience and is very much appreciated by me and literally takes a few seconds. If you don't enjoy the show, uh, sorry, don't do any of those things. Um, certainly, 
well, you know, do what you want. It's a it's a free country slash world. Uh, oh, getting less free by the day. Um, no, it's fine. Well, I mean, it's it's demonstrably not. But let's not get into to politics. Um, yeah. So, how is the the weekly thing doing? Is this is this okay? Is this too much? Is this too soon? Um, I am quite enjoying it. But we'll. I mean, I've got enough guests lined up certainly. So we'll see how it goes. I'll be doing it for a little while at least. Um, and if this is, uh, by the way, if this is your like first episode that you're listening to, then uh, I hope you enjoy it. I hope you continue to enjoy it. Um, please do like go back, look into the archives. There's been some really excellent guests and chats that uh, I think you'll very much enjoy. Right, enough chats. Um, I'll be back next week with a new episode and a new guest. But until then, let's get on with the show. Um, I just realized, Jeff, we've been chatting away. We haven't done like a, a formal introduction. So let's do that and I can cut it together later. Sure, uh, sure. So, Jeff, uh, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for coming on. Uh, if you don't mind, would you introduce yourself? I don't mind at all. And uh, thanks for having me, Declan. Uh, my name is Jeff Green. Uh, I've uh, been in the video game industry in different capacities since around uh, 1996. Uh, at that time, I joined uh, Computer Gaming World magazine, which is a uh, USPT gaming magazine. Uh, and I was there from uh, 96 all the way till it, it finally shut down in 2008, uh, one of the numerous victims of uh, the Internet uh, and other things. Actually, it was less the Internet than Ziff Davis's gross uh, incompetence, which I can say now since <laughs> <laughs> there's nothing they could do about it. Um, and uh, from there, I, I went to EA. Uh, very briefly, uh, I, I followed what is often the trajectory of, of game journalists over to a game company, though that was never my uh, career goal, ever. Um, it was always just to be a writer. Um, and uh, I worked on the Sims franchise at EA for uh, a, a year or two. I, it turned out I was actually much better at writing and critiquing other people's games and actually trying to make one. So I, uh, I bailed on that. Then I started doing social media for EA. Uh, I started the EA podcast. At, at that time, it was one of the first like company podcasts. Uh, it didn't last long either. I, I think it was maybe a little ahead of its time, um, just in terms of the notion. It was, it was ahead of EA's time, let's put it that way. Yeah. It, you know, they weren't really ready at that point, I think, for what I was trying to do, which was be a little more transparent. I think they're much better about it now than they used to be at the time. Uh, and, and anyway, so from there I went to PopCap. I didn't want to work for a big gaming company anymore. Uh, the media, I couldn't go back to the media even though I would have wanted to, but there were no jobs for me. Uh, so I thought, well, I'm going to go to a small game company that I, that I really love, and that turned out to be PopCap. And I did social media there for a couple of years until EA bought them. Uh, so then I was, <laughs> <laughs> so I, I couldn't escape EA. Uh, and uh, uh, I, I was there at, at PopCap from 2008 till 2012. And uh, as soon as I left there, I was contacted by uh, Mr. Engai Kroll, who is a former uh, game journalist. He, he uh, had a very uh, famous column in Newsweek 
magazine, a U.S. Uh, news magazine for years on games, and he left the uh, media in 2009 to form uh, his own consultancy firm called Hit Detection, and uh, he reached out to me to join him in that group. It's just uh, a handful of us, and it's all former gaming journalists, or mostly former gaming journalists, and two of my coworkers are actually editors I used to work with at the magazine. Ah, cool. So, yeah, so in a way, it's kind of full circle for me. I'm like back working with guys that I that I love working with from the from the mid '90s, uh, writing about games. Uh, and the difference is just that we are writing for these clients who hire us to look at their games before they're released, rather than for consumers. It's very different work, um, but uh, it's still getting to do a lot of what I like to do, which is write about games. So absolutely, yeah. well. Let's go. Let's go back then, Jeff. Let's go back to where this started. And if you can remember, what was your first experience of a, a video game? Yeah, well, given that I've got at least a couple decades on you, it, it's it's uh, it's much uh, different than what most people would say now. I mean, it, it really goes back to uh, the beginning of digital gaming. Uh, you know, when I grew up in the uh, late 60s and, and 70s, um, these didn't exist. Uh, you know, I, I, I was a gamer, but that encompassed uh, board games and, uh, you know, Avalon Hill, tile-based war games, that kind of thing. Uh, but so really my first digital experience was actually Pong, right? I mean, that was that was the beginning, so I was there for that. Uh, and through the evolution of the arcade machines, um, uh, I was also a big pinball guy. So, uh, uh, so I played pinball for years and years. Oh, cool. Oh, yeah. I was a huge pinball guy. That was actually where uh, I spent probably uh, a good percentage of my time at college, in- including time I should have been in class. Uh, What's a pinball, <laughs> was it? Yeah, yeah. One of my uh, one of my big claims to fame was that uh, I uh, I actually played pinball on purpose during one of my English finals. So <laughs> because I uh, because it was a, it was like a freshman course I think, and uh, I, I was I've always been a procrastinator with my writing. I'm a little better now because I have to be. But back in college, I always turned my papers in late, and this was an English class where there was a final paper, and it was due the uh, the the uh, last day of class before finals. It was a semester-long paper, and it was a it, a comp- it was a encompassed like sixty percent of the grade, I think, with the final being the other forty. So I didn't turn it in on time, and I showed up at the final, which was after the deadline, with the paper in hand. And I went up to the professor and I said, "Will you take Will you take this paper now?" And she said, "Absolutely not." I told you all semester when it was due. No, and I said, "Well." Okay, so given that, if I ace this final now, am I going to pass the class? And she said, no, you will not. So, so I said, well, then why would I take the final? So I, I walked out of the room, and I went to the pinball arcade. <laughs> so, silver ball arcade on Durant Avenue in Berkeley, and I played pinball all during the uh, final. So the sil- the silver ball arcade that sounds amazing. Like yeah, that was that was yeah that was where we all hung out and played pinball. Uh, but what what I do remember too is when they started bringing in the uh, the digital arcade machines, and it felt like a personal affront to us at the time. 
And keep in mind, we were young when, when that happened, and we were feeling that way. We were feeling like this was some like takeover of our hobby. I mean, I was only like 18, 19, and we were like annoyed at first. I'm imagining you wearing like a groupie while wearing matching jackets and stuff. Exactly. Around outside. Yeah, Levi guys. Exactly. Long hair. And, uh, you know, so Space Invaders showed up and Missile Command showed up, Centipede, other things like that. And at first, they just seemed like newfangled, fatty things. And again, we weren't old people looking down on it. It was just like, what the hell are these things? But of course, they were new and shiny as well, and they were super fun, and so we all eventually got over our initial hostility and uh, played the shit out of them, you know, forever. Um, but uh, but to go um, to actual gaming that that you know that 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 we talk about, it really the first game I ever played on a computer was uh, actually Zork One. Was that the tax adventure? The tax adventure. So that was my first experience playing games on a computer were text-based adventures. Um, and that was followed, or maybe it was sort of simultaneous with uh, one of my roommates ended up getting a Commodore 64, and he had games like uh, Prince of Persia, uh, Bubble Bobble, those kind of things. So really early stuff. So did you uh, all have computers in, in college? That seems quite rare. Well, he was rare. That he was the one guy because he was a big like tech nerd guy. Okay. Uh, so yeah, I had one friend who had a computer back then. Uh, my first computer was a Mac, a Mac Plus that I got in. Oh gosh, it must have been like 1985 or so. And uh, even back then, I was playing games. So it was this amazing game called Dark Castle at the time, which is kind of a Prince of Persia. I don't know if it was a ripoff or if it was simultaneous, um, that kind of thing. So why did you get the computer? Was it was it to play games or was it just you felt like you should? You know what? It it really was to play games, actually. Um, it was like a toy, really. Um, at that point, there was no real practical application for me to have a computer. There was no internet. Uh, we weren't connected to anything. Um I, uh, I I was just fascinated by it. I wasn't a tech guy. I was an English major. I'm still not really a, a tech-oriented uh, person, uh, even though I did have tech jobs before I started at uh, the gaming magazine. But um, but it was I, I think it was just a toy. I just wanted it because it was neat. Um, did you, was, was there like groups of people around? Because obviously now like gamers for for better or worse they tend to be very tribal you know and especially with the internet you can find your your tribes but yes like back then this is like pre-internet and perhaps even like pre um like magazines and press so did you have like a group of people or was it a very solitary experience well it was it was much more solitary um it was and that's that's one of the things that i you know that for younger gamers like I, I'm, I'm definitely an older person who just feels like everything is better now. Like I don't, I don't look back with rose-colored glasses. There's certain things, but you know, there was like a little more, quote unquote, innocence about certain things. I yeah. mean, like we just didn't know as much, and the world was just much bigger um, in that way. Like when you went away, I'm thinking about like in 1984 when I, when I, I did a European backpack trip by myself. Um, 
away from home. And I really felt like I was far away from everything because I was. There were no cell phones. There was no internet. There was no way for my parents to have any idea in the world where I was unless I chose to go to a public phone booth in Europe, figure out the currency and the language and how the phone even worked, uh, if it did work, and, uh, and then call them for a few minutes. It was either that or a postcard. So, uh, I mean, obviously, I was nothing to do with gaming, but that was, that was just more how everything was back then. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, and in terms of gaming, I did feel like kind of alone in that way. And even with the board games back in the day, like we used to play these Avalon Hill war games like Battle of the Bulge and things like that with my friends. But when they weren't around, when we couldn't get together after school or whatever, there was no alternative, you know? There wasn't an online place I could go to even talk about games, you know? Like we could go to NeoGAF or wherever on uh, on the internet just to talk or Twitch to watch other people play games. That, that just, it didn't exist. So what I would do, which sounds sad now, but it's what a lot of kids my age did at that time, I would just set up these games, which were multiplayer games, uh, and play by myself. So I would play like a World War II board game as the Axis and the Allies, which is really kind of impossible to do, but I did it anyway because I want I wanted to game and that was the only alternative I had. Did you have like a special like mustache or something you wore depending on which <laughs> size you were? Exactly. I changed my voice a little. <laughs> oh yeah. So uh, you say uh, that's quite weird though. Like uh, uh, recently uh, myself and a group of my friends have been playing uh, Formula D. You know have you played Formula D, the Formula One board game? Mm-hmm. So we've been playing that, and you know, we, we get together as often as we can. But my friend who actually owns it, he will set it up on his own and do time trials. He will see how right. fast he can get around the the track, which is lovely because I think he just likes it's just like toys, you know. Yeah, right. And it, it, I, the appeal of it, but again, but obviously much more fun to actually play. Oh, absolutely, yeah. Be with people, and it really wasn't until I got to Computer Gaming World in '96. Uh, that I felt that kind of community and that camaraderie. And, and really, when I got that job, from the first day, I, I really felt like, this is it. I, I'm home now. Um, why wasn't I here before? And I'm never going to leave. <laughs> and, I, and I didn't. I didn't leave until I had to, until the magazine closed. But you must uh, have like had a, a real love affair with games to even get that job in the first place, you know? I absolutely did. Yeah, I mean, I I did totally. And at the time, I was uh, after I left college in Berkeley, uh, and my goal was to be a journalist. And and again, I was not tech oriented, so I I was I would have done anything. You know, I had a a, a summer job uh, in L.A. doing regular reporting. You know that that was the path I thought I was on. And was the that first exciting? Th- that could have been quite exciting. Yeah, it was kind of exciting. Um, you know, when you start as like a, a cub beat reporter uh, and you're very, very young, you don't actually get the high-profile stories, you know. I wasn't going to be doing OJ's murder trial. I was I was going to be like, uh, you know, covering a, a cat stuck up in a tree, uh, <laughs> that, that kind of thing. But it might have been a celebrity's cat, so you would have had that. It, right, it might have been, sure. Sure, it could have been, uh, right, Jerry Lewis's cat, I don't know. <laughs> uh, but uh, but uh, I, I ended up 
doing because I was in the Bay Area. I'm still in the Bay Area. At, even back in the um, mid '80s, when I had to go into the job market, like it was, tech was already starting to take over the publishing business here, and so most of the publishing jobs were actually sort of tech oriented. So I started as a proofreader for computer books, uh, doing proofreading on games like I mean, not games on things like uh, spreadsheet software and. Oh, that sounds pretty brutal. Database software. It was the worst. Uh, those were books. So then I transitioned into the magazine world, and I had a job at uh, the now defunct MacWeek magazine, which was a weekly business magazine uh, about uh, Apple. This was way before Apple became what Apple is now. Uh, it was only computers and printers and things like that. And uh, one story I always tell about those days was, I was given the uh, then brand new modem and router beat, so I, I had to. <laughs> that was that was my job was to cover modems, product <laughs> products like that, and I actually had to write reviews of these things, which was like, did they have scores? They did have scores, yeah. But it was like, but it worked. That would be my review. Like, okay, <laughs> you know, I don't know what do you say, and, and the. the you know, when when I knew I was really not cut out for that kind of work, because I really it just bored me shitless. Uh, the magazine actually sent me down to a, a modem and router roundtable <laughs> with tech professionals in uh, in San Jose, California. So I had to drive like an hour and a half to this roundtable, and there were like thirty journalists and other tech professionals literally around this table. Uh, and it was an all-day thing, like from like 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. to talk about modems. And at the beginning, they went around the table, you know, and they asked everybody, like, you know, what are you hoping to get out of this thing? And and I had to, like, rack my brain as it was coming to be my turn. <laughs> like, I don't, nothing. I don't know. Why am I even here? I don't care about, you know, I don't want to get anything out of this except to be able to leave. So at like 10.30, we had our first coffee break, and uh, I went out to my car, and I sat in the car listening to the radio, and I was just like, man, I just do not want to go back. And uh, gosh, there's kind of a running theme now that I'm telling you the story, because this was like my English final. I basically, <laughs> I just like didn't go back. I drove home. <laughs> I just said, fuck it, and I left. And then I faked it with the magazine, which I can also say now because they don't exist anymore. But I just like made up some story about what I learned that day. Um, <laughs> but, but it are really boring. So, so boring. But what I do remember mostly was sitting one day at that, at that job at MacWeek, reading a gaming magazine, because those were now out. So I was reading Next Generation, you know, the first incarnation of that, uh, uh, EGM and uh, Computer Gaming World. And I was so jealous and frustrated and angry i was just like who are these people who get to do this for a living like this is not fair like how fun would it be to to write about this instead of modems like where did i go wrong that i they have this job and i have this job uh so uh mac week was actually owned by the same company as uh computer gaming world which was ziff davis and uh, there were internal job listings that came up now and then when an, an opening would be uh, would come up in another magazine. And so a job for an associate editor showed up on the internal job listing at Computer Gaming World. And that when that happened, I jumped on it immediately. I, I wrote a, an impassioned letter to the editor in chief, Johnny Wilson, basically begging him to take me. And uh, 
And it was also a lower ranked position than where I was at. So I was going to be taking a pay cut and a title cut, which I did do uh, to be able to go to a gaming magazine. And I remember the the editor-in-chief of the Mac magazine was just appalled at what I was doing. Uh, he said, like, do you have any idea what you're doing with your career? And my response was, I know exactly what I'm doing. You're going to play games. I'm about to make myself really happy. And, uh, and in fact, that is exactly what happened. You know, I, I loved going to work every day. I'd never had that experience in my life up until that point. Um, I would be sitting on the train, like, excited to show up at work. It was an incredible feeling. That is amazing. So when you when you you saw this job list and you had this, you know, you said you wrote this impassioned letter. Like what what games had you been playing at that point? That or like how, was there a specific game or games that that really made you think like this? This is where I want to be, or was it purely the novelty of I get to play games as my job? It was, you know, it was really kind of both those things. I mean, it was probably mostly the latter, but there were definitely games that were starting to come out around that time where it was, it was clear that, uh, you know, that uh, it was just such an exciting medium and was only going to get more exciting. I mean, some of the, the first games that really blew my mind, uh, the, the one that blew my mind at the time was Doom. Uh, I'd already played Castle Wolfenstein, and, uh, you know, so I, was from, I had some FPS experience, but Doom, to me, was the first game that, that really... Uh, I was utterly lost in, you know, in my head with the headphones, just like scared to death playing it. Uh, and then even at Mac Week at the magazine, that was around the time of Marathon. And, you know, not a lot of people know this, but Marathon, which was created by Bungie, of course, uh, was one of the uh, very first games that actually had LAN multiplay. Uh, they don't get as much credit. Um, the Marathon series doesn't get as much credit for what it accomplished back in the time. But it was also one of the series where that really uh, quite successfully incorporated narrative into a first-person shooter uh, uh, game, which, of course, Bungie has since gone on to do many, many more times over with, with Halo and Destiny. Um, but, but anyway, at, at the end of the day at Mac Week, me and a few of the people who also liked games uh, would play Marathon multiplayer. Um, so that was my first land gaming experience, and that was like something... I had never experienced and was sort of another sign of this is where I want to be. This is what I want to do. But surely like the land stuff, would that not be <clears throat> as similar as the, the, the board game stuff you do? And it, it is this sense of a communal play. I mean, that's always the fun part, especially land gaming because you're yes. all still in the same room, you know? Yes. You exactly. Throw things at people. Exactly. You know, uh, I, I think that those memories of my time at the magazine are, are some of the best. Uh, uh, it's the land gaming with, with other people in the same room and all this, the, the trash talking that goes on all the time. And I mean, at the height of like Quake 2, which I think was the first game, maybe Quake 1, that really captured the, the computer gaming world office's imagination, our, our tech guy set up a, a basically like a, a, a game, like land room. And there was a period of time where we would just beeline as soon as we showed up for work we would all just go in there it was just like being in an arcade all day and we, we would just play quake all day long uh and occasionally work on the magazine uh, <laughs> and but i get what you're saying i mean it was kind of like the board game days in a way but it was also um it was different because it was the it was the 
competitive aspect of the skills. You know, it wasn't, I mean, of course, board games have the same, have the intellectual skills that you're, you're pitting against yeah, one another. Yeah, but it's not like the literal, physical, like, exactly. all the sports, essentially. Exactly, right, almost like sports, the, 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 the twitch skills, the physical skills. I still remember the first guy in our office to learn uh, mouse look, you know, which of course we all take for granted now, but that was a new thing at the time. Uh, we, we used to just play these games on a keyboard. Uh, and when mouse look got introduced, uh, Elliot Chin, who was one of our younger editors at the time, he learned it right away and he just started schooling all of us horribly. And he basically had to go to our desk one by one and, and show us how to do it. Um, That's amazing. Yeah, yeah proper new techniques so when you first got there though like i don't know why i'd assume this but like my my thought especially in like early days of, of computing press is that a lot of people who would work at these magazines could just be guys who worked on magazines and just like oh we're starting a game magazine go and work in games but they wouldn't necessarily have the the love or the passion of it that you you clearly did like did you find that or was everybody as excited as you were that's a great question um the, the, it, it was. It really came from different places. Um, in a lot of cases, it was gamers who, uh, and this is maybe the majority of the cases, especially for those who founded these magazines. Yeah, they were they were hobbyists who did not have that outlet. Right? They were they were the you know hardcore gamers who it, it was sort of like a music fanzine, right? Like uh, just fans who decided to together something so they could talk about the thing that they loved. Yeah. So so a lot of those people and a lot of my coworkers weren't really writers or journalists necessarily uh, first. They were more impassioned gamers first. Um, whereas I came more from the writer side. I did happen to love games, yeah, but my my uh, my focus uh, for most of my life until then had been more uh, on the writing side. Um, so, and had you ever written about games before the magazine? I really like, had it kind I, of I, just I, as almost like for, not necessarily for fun because that's perhaps a, a little odd way of saying it, but you know what I mean? Like, had you ever sort of tried to sort of examine games journalistically before you got on the magazine? You know, I really hadn't, other than um, I, I tried to, I always was pushing to cover games in Mac Week, but they always shut me down because it was a serious business magazine and you know, v- video games aren't aren't uh, serious uh and i was always trying to push articles on like video games that were being developed on the mac or 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 even if they were pc games a lot of artists were using macs as they still are which but that was novel way back then but i could never get the magazine to to agree to cover them uh once a year they would let me for the december holiday gift guide they would let good old jeff green write 600 words on video games but uh, but that was that was it and in fact, um, it's a good question because when I got to the magazine, uh, I was intimidated and I felt a little um, out of my league uh, with all these other writers who, who had been writing and critiquing games professionally for a long time. Now, I had written a ton of music and movie reviews and things like that. Okay, cool. Uh, yeah, so I was used to being a critic. Uh, but never for video games. But I did learn to apply those skills, of course, to covering games. And a lot of that stuff would have still been being formulated around then, you know? There, there wasn't an established video game media as there is now, you know? 
That's right. There wasn't at all. Uh, not at all. Do you remember uh, the first thing that you wrote about? <laughs> Funny. I was thinking about that before we got on the call. It, it was like uh, it was sort of like what I said about being a beat reporter. At first, they just gave me little things to do. Uh, so I was doing like uh, I was doing like uh, at the time on the PC there were way more sports games than there are now. It, it wasn't all console oriented, but they gave me like all the like alternate you know weird sports games like like these like track and field and and uh, soccer. Which forgive me. Uh, especially nice at that, especially at that time in the United States was not a big thing. Of course, now it's thankfully totally different. But back then, soccer was like some crazy, weird international thing that we didn't get. Um, so I got to I got to cover things like that. Uh, but then the other games that I did get to cover that were much more up my alley were adventure games. Uh, so story based um, games like uh, um, all the LucasArts games, the Day of the Tentacle and those, and then the old Sierra on, uh, online games, uh, Phantasmagoria, Gabriel Knight. And those really fit right into my, uh, my skill set and, and my area of interest because of writing about narrative, writing yeah. movie views and things like that. So I was actually quite qualified, and in some ways maybe more so than some of my colleagues, to, to do that kind of writing. So that was actually sort of the best way to me, for me to make that transition. It's quite interesting, actually. This just occurred to me that, like, things like that, like I remember first playing, I think Day of the Tentacle was the first LucasArts game I played, and it just completely blew my mind. Yes. And work, because games are, would have still been such a new medium, and they still are, you know, to a big degree, mm-hmm. Things like that, like if if you're writing about uh, Day of the Tentacle, say for instance, but or maybe one of the early ones, that's kind of a brand new thing that's never existed before. So like yeah. writing about that is just like, oh my god, this is amazing! It's like a cartoon, but you can play and you can choose what happens. Right. Like right. it must be so hard to try and pull back the the critique on it because no critique exists for that form before, you know. It, that's it, yeah. That's a really good observation, and also like just yeah, that wow factor. You know, I, I I think there were games that would come along that would just be so amazing that it, it was hard in a way. And maybe you know, maybe there's some parallel in a way now to to VR. You know, where yeah, totally. every every new thing is like whoa. You know, so it's hard to know in the long run is this actually going to stand the test of time, or is this ultimately going to be looked as like a glorified tech demo or something? But a lot uh, of the a lot of the the, the text adventures, did, uh, not text adventures, but the the LucasArts games that they do stand up, like they clearly have aged very well, like they're brilliant. Yes, they aged very well, and you know, it's the writing is what yeah. did it. It's just like timeless classic comedy writing. Um, so you know that that just goes to show. Um, how how important writing is in games well this is this is a question i've got for you then because i i find increasingly that i i care less and less about writing in games and and stories Mm -hmm. in games um like for instance i'm playing dark souls at the minute i'm sure you are well i know you are too (laughs) yes i watch do you know have you seen epic name bros youtube channels where he does playthroughs and he, he goes into all this detail about the law, which is mind-blowing because yeah. I've just run past that whole thing and not, not known yeah. a thing about it. No idea what's going on in any of those games, but they seem to have very rich, detailed law. And yeah. I just, I don't, I don't get it. Same with Diablo recently. I, I had a mild Diablo obsession. I could not tell you 
anything about what happens in Diablo. It's other than I got all these cool legendaries, you know? (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Yeah, I'm totally the same way. And it's funny. And it's funny to me that I am that way because I shouldn't be. I I was thinking about that even just yesterday. I I picked up uh, the new Ratchet and Clank uh, for PS4. And I realized uh, without even thinking about it, I was I was uh, tabbing past some of the cutscenes, which are great. You know, yeah, they're, they are. They're really good. Like the animation is is practically Pixar level at this point, and the dialogue and uh, you know the all of it is kind of Pixar level. It's just super funny. But I was getting bored. Uh, you know, I was like, oh, yeah, come on, I just want to like break stuff. Um, and and the same thing with Dark Souls. I mean, yeah, if you've seen my streams or whatever, like I'm I'm con- I'm basically just sitting there talking over any exposition there <laughs> ever is. I you know I don't pay any attention to who these guys are. I just make up names for the monsters. I don't really care, which is such a shame because obviously there's such deep lore in those games. It's clear. And in fact, in in plenty of off hours, I've I've tried to go to websites and said like, okay. I know I'm always just sort of like making fun of this, but I but I'm convinced that and, and I'm a fantasy fan, like a deep I read fantasy yeah. novels all the time. So I'm like, okay, so there's probably like a great story here. And I'm gonna I'm gonna spend today really learning about Dark Souls. So then the next time I stream, I'm actually gonna be able to be part of the universe. And I don't last for like ten minutes on these websites because i'm like eh, whatever i think there's just too much else to think about in dark souls you're you're too alert and like nervous about what's around the next corner to really soak in the atmosphere right and also i think the harder question for me is like and i know this isn't the case for everybody but so it really is just for me it's like does it matter to me do i actually care what the story here is like i think to be completely honest i sort of don't you know (laughs) i actually am just playing this to beat on monsters and to try to improve my skill set. Like, I'm not sure that I'm interested. I hate to say it. No, no, I, I think I think that's that's fine to say. I, I mean, there, there are obviously exceptions. I think I think the main exceptions tend to be games where the story. Like, I think cutscenes is the problem. I think anytime you introduce cutscenes, you're like skip it. But but the games that really successfully, I think, marry the story into the world are, are brilliant. Like. Uh, Ken Levine's games like all the Bioshocks yes. are amazing and Half-Life and things like I, I, I tend to get really invested in those stories and the, you know the, all the Naughty Dog uh, games because they're you're, you're playing through the story as opposed to stop a second we're going to show you this story exactly and then when the, when the gaming that you're doing is really unrelated to the story so you'll get a piece of exposition or you'll get a piece of armor that if you in Dark Souls, if you happen to read the text, that will give you more backstory. And then the cutscenes, as you're saying. But then when it, the control comes back to you, nothing you're doing is actually related to the story, no. right? You're just you're just pressing buttons and and bashing on pixels. Where I mean, I agree with you 100%. Whereas when you're playing Half Life, um, you are the story. It's happening to you, and you're making it happen. The scripted events, all those things are things that you're experiencing. Um, I do remember, um, I actually wrote the original review for Half-Life 1 in Computer Gaming World, um, and it was probably the most glowing review I I ever wrote, um, because I was truly blown away for exactly that reason. You know, even at the time, and I certainly was not alone, we all agreed, you know, that was the game where where they took the first-person genre that we all already love through Doom, 
but but they really made that a completely cinematic experience in a way that's like hardly really been rival even till now. Oh I no, mean, it's a, superb. It's just incredible. I mean, there's a lot of games that emulate it pretty well now, um, but I don't know if it's ever really been surpassed. Um, just from the moment the game starts, it was like you know going on that tram. Uh, it was just a story that you were experiencing. It's easy to take for granted now, but at the time, it was just mind blowing that somebody had accomplished that. Yeah, I mean, interestingly, I had I spoke to um, uh, Sean Vanneman. Do you know Sean? Yes. Uh, he was on the show uh, last year sometime, and we were talking about Half Life as well. And he he made a point which has stuck with me because it was so clever and clearly a very like comes from a designer's mind. He's like the genius of Half Life is that when it starts, you have to sit on that tram. And you can't do anything for 10, 10 minutes other than walk around the tram. So the game mm-hmm. is basically forcing you to get into Gordon Freeman's mindset and make you feel like you are Gordon Freeman. And everything. And by the time the game starts proper, you're already there. You're in <laughs> in that that place with the character, and suddenly you're you're the story, as you say, which I think is yeah. just super smart. That is super smart. It, it it's so great, and I'll, I'll never forget watching that for the first time. I mean, it was. It was so, I, I, I don't know if it's even possible to understand, it, you know, to have a game that had a cold open like that, where you weren't just seeing a start screen and you weren't setting things up, uh, you know, you were, it, it just was this experience that was happening to you from the moment it started. The credits were rolling as you were on, on the train, uh, and, uh, and you could actually see things that later you would experience in the game. I mean, that was another thing. It was also setting up the space of, of what you were going to be doing throughout the game. I mean, it was really just kind of a genius. Oh, yeah, so good. So what else, um, like, once you got set, like, how long after you got started did did Half-Life come in and did did these kind of games start to come in? Well, I started at the magazine in in 96 and Half-Life was was 98. So, you know, that was a couple years into my, into writing about them already. Um, but it was it was so clearly uh, a, a gigantic landmark in, in the industry that uh, I, I think we all knew at the time that it was such a game changer. And uh, you know, when I talked to my fellow editors at the time, um, <clears throat> you know, shooters were of course already huge at that time. Quake Two had long been out, all sorts of them. And when we first covered Half Life for the very first time, it was part of a shooter roundup. And that story was like something like 50 or 60 pages, which you could do back in those days in a gaming magazine. The, the issues were hundreds of pages. And so we covered all of these first-person shooter games, and Half-Life was like an afterthought in this article. Like, it had no media presence at that time. Valve was unknown, literally, at the time. Um, they did, it seemed like an also-ran game. The cover game for that issue was Daikatana. <laughs> because, uh, which I know is like a butt of everybody's jokes yeah, now, yeah, and, yeah. and mine too, in fact. But but at that time, it you know it's hard to remember. But before all these games came out, before all that, like everyone was psyched about Daikatana. Like it did seem like it was going to be the thing because it was John Romero's next game, and he was like Mr. Doom and Quake. Um, you know, it became the butt of a joke way before it ever came out. But but way back when we wrote that article, we thought. Uh, that was going to be the one. The other big games in that in that article were Prey and Sin and games like this. And Half-Life had like a minor sidebar. Um, so we just really had no idea 
um, it just seemed weird. Like, okay, you're a scientist. <laughs> you know, like, it's like, oh, whatever. It, like, nothing sounded promising at all. Uh, and we were instantly blown away from the first minute. So, oh, so good. So, um, you clearly, you know, you're invested in, in sort of PC because you're working for the magazine. But yeah. did you did you play at home? Did you get consoles and stuff? Was that... Like, I did. Even stuff like, you know, the like the Nintendo, like the NES and stuff. Yeah, I did. I, I, I Well, I shared an NES uh, with the roommate, but the, um, myself, I had, uh, I had a PlayStation 1. That's, I think that was the first one I bought with my own money for me, where I wasn't just sharing it with a, with a roommate or whatever. So I did have a, a PS1. And um, at the time, I think it's less so now, but, you know, the console versus PC wars were, were huge at that time. Oh, I mean, absolutely. It's right? People talk about the quote-unquote PC master race, all that nonsense. But um, it was much more, like, about the games then, though, because there, there wasn't as much cross-platform, if at all. You're right, actually. It was. It was, it was very much about the game and the gaming experience. Yeah. And really, it did seem like you had to pick a side, right? I mean, it was sort of blasphemy at the magazine that I had a PlayStation. In fact, I even remember in the uh, interview, the, the uh, in-person interview I had with Johnny Wilson for Computer Gaming World, he asked what I was playing right now. And I made the mistake. The first game out of my mouth was Wipeout. And... I almost didn't get the job. <laughs> you know, he was like, what? On the PlayStation? And I was like, well, yeah, because it's awesome. But, you know, he wanted to hear Civilization or Panzer General or something like that. I was, it was a tactical mistake. I still got the job. But, uh, but there were so many arguments back then of what was better, what was not. <clears throat> and, of course, uh, one of the great ironies at the time, or now, is that at the time, one of the hugest arguments for console gaming and console gamers was... Well, these things just work out of the box, right? PC games were always broken. They always required, once there was an internet, they required patches. Yeah, of course, yeah. now that's so par for the course for the console, too, that it, you know, that argument's out the window. Um, but what I think is also mostly out the window is that there has to be an, an either-or there, that there's a dichotomy. Yeah, I don't uh, think that really exists as much. I mean, it's more, I think, now about the who's got the best tools it's it's much more niche and you know who's got the best fans i i don't i don't know anything about computers jeff right but it's also yeah which plat which platform is it going to look better on or which one are my friends all going to play on you know that's it, the it, only real like question really is what are my friends yeah, going to be playing it's, on? It, yeah it's nice it's like we have this you know endless abundance of options in which we can play um and so yeah, I mean, I did, I did have the consoles, and I and I loved them at the time. But but even as 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 you know, a couple of years went on, I remember, um, like I remember when Super Mario sixty four came out, and uh, and me and another editor were just absolutely blown away by it. Uh, to to this day, it, it it stands out in my mind like Doom did is one of the ones where my my mind was just expanded at the possibilities of gaming. You know, what Mario did with the 3D space was, was so mind-boggling at the time. But my fellow editors uh, couldn't appreciate it because it was just a baby game on a baby console system. <laughs> you know, they that didn't was a, really think that, though, did you think? I, I'd like to hope deep down that they didn't, but, I, but that was sort of the posture you had to take if you were a serious, you know, computer gamer, PC gamer. Because we had an argument at the magazine, I still remember it. 
I still remember playing Mario 64 and two dudes walking up behind us and being like, like, oh, yeah, this is great if you're 10, you know. It's like, okay. It is great <laughs> if you're 10, but also it is great now. Yeah, I was like, you know, late 20s, early 30s. It was great to me at that time. So Did you, you tend to play in secret then with the, the PlayStation and stuff? Kind of. It was like a secret game. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and, and then, you know, once my daughter was born, she was born in 93, and, and many of my all-time fondest gaming memories are playing uh, Nintendo games with her uh, when she was a little kid. Um, yeah. And was she always into games, or did you, like, steer her towards them? Well, it's, it's, it's both at once, right? She was always into games because I brainwashed her. So <laughs> I, I made her be always in the game. I mean, really, it's not that hard of a stretch to get a little. Oh, absolutely, kid. no, no. Um, you know, th- there was the. Um, uh, you know, I'm from the generation where there weren't games before me, and so, like my parents, uh, and even a lot of people my age, just it wasn't a thing to do, and it wasn't a cool thing to do, and it was a thing only, like, kids did, and it was a thing that led to violence or whatever. And so, you know, playing games with my kid at that time was more, like, uh, the kind of thing I would have to, like, defend to other parents or something, like, am I rotting her brain out or whatever. You know, I was always in arguments about that with, with other parents or other adults or adults older than me. Um but I'm so glad I did it. And Sarah, my daughter, is, is you know, has amazing memories of, of those times. What did uh, your parents think of you working for the video game magazine? Talking about this generational gap. You know? yeah, they, weren't, they weren't impressed at all. Uh, uh, I remember it wasn't until... Um, so I'd been on the magazine for years. I was eventually running the magazine. I, I became editor in chief in, in 2000, and I was I stayed at it till 2008. So you know, I, I I I'm not saying this in like a braggy way, but like this was like an internationally distributed magazine with like Absolutely. a large circulation, and I was in charge. So I felt like okay, I had actually kind of done something with my career. You know, I didn't know if I really would. I you know, but this is some some form of success I've achieved. You know, but I never, I, I never felt like I got that acknowledgement. And it wasn't until I'd already been EIC for many years, and I got interviewed by um, NPR, you know, uh, 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 public radio in yeah, the United yeah. for some. It must have been some gaming scandal or something happened that attracted mainstream attention, and they interviewed me. And uh, and then I got a call from my dad, who was so impressed that like I'd finally made it you know <laughs> and I was like dad like I've been doing this for years like it was just because I was on another medium that was like not gaming that I suddenly it was suddenly impressive yes yeah, the establishment saying this is a good thing basically right but but you know one of my aunts uh uh actually said and and this is not even that long ago this is like within the last like say 6 or 7 years said to my wife, you know, do you think Jeff is ever going to get, like, a serious job? <laughs> I'm 54 years old, and I've been doing this for most of my adult life. And I was just like, wow, really? Like, what is it ever going to take? You know, but I, but I think to that generation in particular, uh, it's, this is not serious business. It's not, it doesn't, it does not uh, hold the same um, 
the same place as any other art form whatsoever. They don't take it seriously. I think I think the only real equivalent now, and I don't think it would be quite as extreme, would be like kids who become like professional YouTubers or something. I think parents would still be a bit like, "What are you doing?" But, sure. But clearly, they're they're making a living. It's a new thing. So, right, they are, and it's and it's more possible now. I mean, it's more absolutely. So it's so much more democratic than it was back in in, in the day when I was doing it, and, and it's, it's such an, an amazing development. But but you're right. I mean, and I think all of us, you know, even those of us who are are lifelong gamers, like when Twitch first came around, I had the same question as everybody else, which is why the heck would I want to watch someone else play a video game? Like, it, you know, but then when you start experiencing it, you get it. Um, yeah, that's I don't, great. I don't think anybody's going to be asking that question, you know, very long from now. No, no, not at all. Um, well, I, I, I want to get on to talking about, like, some of the podcast things, but since we're talking about this familial stuff, I, 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 I know, like, through listening to you over the years, that, you know, you played a lot of World of Warcraft with your daughter. So, <laughs> yeah. like, that kind of... That that must have been so exciting to have this kind of world that you could share together. Like again, it's one of those yes. things where that hasn't. I mean, it, it it had existed previously, but not to that kind of fidelity. It was so exciting to to do that with her. Yeah, were you uh, at all nervous about that? Well, sure, I was nervous because uh, you know she was young and 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 uh, this was online. Uh, the first MMOs that I let her play were actually the ones that were. Um, geared towards kids so uh oh gosh what was that there was one i can't remember if disney did it there were a couple that were really like very walled gardens for kids where there was no chance you know um i i'm blanking on the name but there were there there have been there were mmos that were more kid oriented and those were the ones i allowed her on um and it was you know when wow came out uh that was 2004 I believe so she was 11 and um, by then I felt I felt comfortable doing it with her and it, it was so exciting and it was so fun and, and the great thing about uh, playing WoW with her was like she got so into it that she ended up becoming like a guild leader like she got more into it than I was even when she was like uh, you know that young after a while I started going to her for questions about like <laughs> about my builds like do you think I should do this like do you think I should have this weapon um, and she actually became yeah so she became a guild leader and I remember she was organizing a party in uh, for her guild in Stormwind City one day and they were going to have a, a picnic party out there and she she came in uh, and we were playing WoW in our in our uh, different rooms um and she came in all sheepishly and shy, and she asked if it would be okay if she had, at this party, if she had mead or whatever they called it, whatever the in-game alcohol was called, because she was only 12 years old at the time. <laughs> That's <laughs> the cutest so thing. Like, well, of course you can, honey. It's not real. But, uh, <laughs> uh, but uh, the thing about WoW, too, um, was, uh, yeah, I think that's probably the MMO that I spent the most hundreds of hours on but second would be everquest i think oh so were you big into everquest beforehand uh, so into everquest and I, I think the real difference between the two was that um everquest was still like the wild west for uh for mmos it was much more anything goes much more like 
you just like are warped into the world and then good luck to you to figure out what the hell you're supposed to do here. Whereas WoW was very much like, um, you know, World of Warcraft land. It was like Disneyland. Yeah. Everything, it was an amazing experience. I don't mean that as a negative. But they took care of everything for you. You know, you were, here's where you go to get your quest. Here's how you do this thing. I mean, uh, to some extent, it's what the genre really needed. They were brilliant. Uh, Blizzard, as always, was brilliant in taking a genre formerly like a little too arcane for the masses and making it something that everybody could play. Whereas EverQuest was, was such a rough experience, but, but that was also what was so exciting and great about it. Um, this, this is like quite interesting to me, I think. Like the... I was never like I was quite into games when I was younger, but never like massively into games. And then when I was about sixteen, I I sold all of my consoles and I bought a guitar and an amp and I was going to play oh, music. Wow. And I did that for a few years. But the thing that really brought me back into games and really like made me double down on it was uh, internet forums. Like when when you, the very first <laughs> early internet forums, late nineties, and suddenly having this community was amazing. And yeah. then the next thing that really got me really back into games again as i started to drift away was podcasts like and it was and it was one of yours and and gfw like those are the the (laughs) sort of the proto video game podcasts and i remember like similar to sort of let's play and someone was saying oh this is really good it's just a bunch of guys talking about video games but it was so i mean obviously there's hundreds of them now but like at the time it was so exciting that that whole experience of, of being like you know the the fifth chair around the table like the <laughs> silent partner sort of thing and you get to know all these people and how they talk so yeah did, did you feel that at the time when they they launched the podcasts at the magazine i i think we did i mean yeah i mean i've i've talked about this before but you know I, at the time uh it, there really wasn't you know they were brand new and Ziff Davis, our, our publisher, actually mandated that we all the magazines do uh, podcasts. And this was, uh, so this would have been EGM, uh, the official PlayStation magazine, OPM, us, Computer Gaming World, and the others. And we uh, at CGW distinctly did not want to do it. We felt like, uh, first of all, we felt like we were, I, I never, I always have trouble with authority, so I don't like doing anything <laughs> I'm, I'm told to do. I'm going to play so, pinball. Exactly. I'm not going to go to my final. So, um, so I didn't like, I resented that we were forced to do this thing that felt like beside the point. I was like, we have a magazine to write and we're all writers. We're not, we're not talkers. And, uh, and we're not getting paid for this. You know, give me extra money if we have to do a podcast too. Um, so we went down there like with kind of a shitty attitude uh, at the beginning, but I think actually in the end that's sort of what helped CGW Radio later GFW kind of have its its personality. I think it it was that. But really, I mean, we did think like, well, we had fun talking amongst. Like we realized once we turned the mics on, like we were just having the same conversation that we were having in the office all day. We were just like joking and talking about the stuff we were playing and making fun of each other for being lousy at games or whatever it was. Um, and and it was fun, but it was hard to imagine at that time that anybody else actually cared about this or that what we had to say. It didn't seem like, why would anyone... I mean, it did seem like, why would anyone want to listen to this? Uh, and then when we started getting feedback on it, 
the feedback was insane. And it wasn't necessarily because what we were doing was so great. It was more like what you're saying. It was more that like we became people Absolutely. To, uh, to the people who read our magazine. And it, w- it was remarkably, like almost astonishingly quick how the uh, percentage of the letters and email used to be hand letters, but then later email became about the podcast and not the magazine, almost to a frustrating extent. We were like, well, this is actually our day job. But it was because the podcast made us be real. Um, we were not just anonymous bylines. Um, and, and so we came to appreciate that later at the time. Um, but certainly we had no expectation and no anticipation that it was going to end up going that way. Um, it's, it's really, it always amazes me how 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 good especially like the one of yours in gfw uh, in particular like how how bad they could have been with different people you know it, it, it always amazed me that literally every single person that was on each of the shows has was perfect in their in their role and it, everyone fed off each other and they've all gone on to do amazing things like it's such a brilliant kind of collection of people to well, watch that with you know I, I really appreciate you saying that, and, and the thing is, that, like, we all feel that way now too. You know, we're all many years past that, and as you say, m- most of us are on to different careers. But when we get together in any combination of people, like, we all are feel like blessed now because it really was a perfect storm of of talent, and we just didn't even really know or even appreciate it at the time. It's not like we were all sitting there going, like, we're so great. We were just a bunch of doofy game editors. You know, many of us with our own like self-esteem problems, you know, like we didn't really think this was like awesome what we were doing. We were just doing it. But now when we do look back, it's like, holy shit, like this was one room where we had, you know, Mark McDonald and John Davison and Sean Elliott and Ryan Scott, you know, one person after another, Gene Pinkard, Kathleen Sanders, you know, Andrew Fister. I mean, I, I could sit here all day and list them Absolutely. all. So I, my apologies for the ones I didn't list, but, you know, Shane Bettenhausen. Um, Garnet Lee, just like an incredible roster that, yeah, it was, um, I I think all of us, when we get together and talk, you know, we say without meaning any disparagement to all of our current jobs, because we all love them, it's like, that was like the best time. That was, that was really some kind of peak, uh, I think, for all of us. um, Do you think, like, the, what what do you think the podcast would have been like if it was when you very first joined the magazine with that that group of people the original group the original gang yeah do you think it would have been as good or not no. that's that's not fair to say it would be as good but do you know what <laughs> i mean like it would have been different it would have been i different. know I, I think it would have been terrible uh, no offense to all those guys i mean it it, it, it would have been bad uh it would have been too insular a little too uh snooty i think about pc gaming uh, I think the collection of people when we did do it was was the right collection, and the games as well. Obviously, it was the you know the, the right amount of brilliant new games coming out all the time. Yeah, and the games, and I think also there was something about the fact that we all started at at, at once um, that there was a nice like friendly competitive spirit um, that we sort of fed off each other on. You know, like One Up Yours was clearly, they were like the flagship podcast. They were they were the big one. But like, because they had that res, that reputation, that made us at, at GFW Radio uh, feel, you know, we felt like the, you know, the uh, unappreciated stepchild, but that would make us sort of do things in response to that. Yeah, absolutely. 
Um, even I think like my hello and welcome or whatever. I remember I was sort of like making fun of Garnet at the beginning. I was trying to be like, you know, because he has such a great like FM radio. He's such a natural host <laughs> that way when he gets on the mic. And I so I, I think the first time I ever did it, I was like, hello and welcome. You know, I was just trying to <laughs> make fun of that. And then that just became a thing. But, you know, but 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 there was really a feeling every day that like we were we were doing something interesting and fun and it was it was fun to kind of be competitive a little bit that way absolutely um so i'm I'm talking around sort of this sort of period when you're doing all the the podcasts and stuff like there there was especially then i feel like that was very much when the pc was kind of not not quite at its peak there there was a few years where the pc kind of just dipped and there there wasn't really anything huge so was that difficult to sort of not difficult to keep the magazine. Of course, there'll be enough to keep going. But was it frustrating that you had all these like mad, amazing games coming out on consoles like GTA and things? Mm-hmm. Like obviously, ultimately that came to PC. But you know, at the time, mm-hmm. it, was, it felt very two very distinct like trajectories of where games were going. You know? Oh yes, absolutely. It was extremely. Uh, it was it was stressful, in fact, because as the guy running the magazine, it was a constant thing. You know, is this magazine going to stay in business? I mean, you know, it was it was. I felt like our head was on the chopping block so much, uh, but it only sort of added to our underdog feeling that we had when we were recording. I think it it added a, even again to that kind of rebellious spirit that we had. But but you know, on on a practical reality level, it was stressful. Yeah, and uh, you know, now it, it's amazing to look at what happened with the PC and to see uh, really what how Steam revolutionized everything and made it be um, uh, so much more accessible to everyone. And then, and, and also as a platform for indie games, um, where, you know, where Steam helped uh, fuel the rise of games that in, in the old days would never have seen the light of day because no big publisher would have ever picked it up. Yeah. Um, so, but that's now, you know, that didn't happen back then. And uh, it didn't exist back then. So, yeah, it was a... It was a really rough time, and you know, in some ways, I'm amazed we lasted as long as we did. Um, given Were there that- any particular like uh, issues where you're like, right, someone needs to think of something because we've got nothing coming out at all. Oh yeah, I mean, if you go back and look at the archive of the magazine, I mean, we were talking earlier, you and I, about like you know these literally no exaggeration, like 400, 500 page issues of the magazine. They were like gigantic catalogs. And the last few issues we ever made were like 80 pages, if that. It was depressing. And that was because there wasn't much to write about and advertisers were advertising because people weren't playing PC games. So it was a real low ebb. That's, that's uh, a shame that you didn't get to sort of pick up on the whole renaissance in the last couple of years. Like, I know. I mean, we never we never were lost for things to talk about. It was fine, and obviously, you know, I'm being dramatic here, but it's not like things weren't existing. I mean, WoW was the hugest thing in gaming, and so well, that was yeah. during that time. So it's not like there weren't things, but yeah, I, what I mean, it was more of a niche than it is now. It, it was definitely not having the kind of renaissance um, that it is now. Um, did you I, did you ever? kind of get tired of games you know because you've, you've spent so long working in it and working at magazine you're going to be playing so much um like was there have there been points where you're like oh i'm you know i'm sick of this and if so like what what sort of games would have pulled you back in 
Um, I think, I think to be honest with you, I, I never did actually get sick of it. And I, I still don't. Um, I actually usually have to sort of make my spend all day at work like thinking about games and playing games and then at night I'll have to go like okay now don't play games all night too like go read a book or you know go watch a movie with your wife or something so I think I'm just so into it that I never got tired of it I mean when PC gaming was in in the rut it was in I was still playing WoW and I had the consoles so uh, for me I never really had that point where I got sick of games. I mean, sure, now and then I'll I'll take a break, for, but not for long. I mean, like uh, one day I'll take a break. <laughs> yeah, no, it is this way, especially now with like phones and stuff. I, I honestly uh, yeah. couldn't tell you the last time I went more than a, a couple of days without playing a video game of some, some form. Yeah, it's crazy. I mean, you asked me, uh, or you sent me before we uh, recorded uh, a few days ago, you'd sent me a list of theoretical questions, and one of them was, um, um, I think it was along the lines of, what's the game you, you've argued the most about? Yeah, yeah. And the answer to that, unequivocally, is Hearthstone. And that's not arguments with fans, that's with my wife, because she <laughs> hates that game, because I can't stop playing it. So... We have actually had to put rules in place at the house, like I don't start a game right before dinner, or I, you know, I don't play d- while we're watching a movie or things like that because I'm so obsessive about it that she really hates it because it's just an obtrusion in her life. This <laughs> this, this stupid card game. Has have you ever tried to win her over? Have you ever tried to introduce her to it? She hates it too much. That ship has sailed. It's it's like her nemesis. But, you know, I've tried to get her into games uh, throughout our... Yeah, has she ever been into games? Nope, never. Never. Well, actually, there's one There's one humongous exception, and that is Bookworm from PopCap, my former oh, yeah, yeah. daughter. And she is so addicted to that, in fact, to this day, oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, that she has, she has kept her iPhone 4 because that was the last phone it was ever compatible with. So she has, a, it, it's not hooked up to anything, you know, she doesn't have an account on it, but that's like literally her bookworm machine now. So she has a real, she has a new iPhone, but then she has her bookworm gaming device. And like that is her obsession. And uh, it got to a point where we would uh, walk our dog together and uh, uh, she would be playing it on the walk. And I was the one who had to say like, hey man, like we're on the dog walk, like don't, don't play bookworm while we're walking the dog outside. So that was the one time I got to see life from her side of things, but it was like living with me. <laughs> um, but other than that, though, no, not not a gamer. Okay, I'm gonna try a, a couple of like quick fire sort sure. of questions, right? So you don't have to answer quickly, but what um, has there been a game that you've been really competitive over to the point where you've like had to leave the room? Well, Hearthstone immediately comes to mind there. I, I'm super competitive in that. Uh, I've gotten extremely angry. Like, no game has ever made me more angry, ever, than Hearthstone because uh, because of the competitive nature of it. And, and of course, you know, just the, the frustration that comes with any card game, any card game, poker, whatever, of, your, uh, you know, you are uh, beholden to the luck of the draw. 
Um, of course, skill plays a huge part, but if you don't get those cards that you know you have in your deck, you're going to lose. Uh, and the frustration of feeling like you're losing to somebody way worse than you because you don't have the card that if you just got it, you would destroy them. Uh, <laughs> you know, it's so frustrating. I have yelled at the game. I've like thrown my iPad. Like I've behaved in ways that are embarrassing in front of both my wife and kid uh, with Hearthstone in ways that I don't even recognize myself because I don't do that with any other game. And then like shooters I, I used to be competitive in. Uh, or feel competitive in, but now I'm so old that uh, I, I've had to just sort of take myself out of that because my skills have declined so much. It's just a fact of life. Apparently, um, MOBAs are, are, are the perfect place for people who used to be good at shooters and don't have the reflexes anymore. But I've never, <laughs> I've never played. A few people have said that to me, though. That that's Really? Yeah, yeah. If you, if you don't quite have the reflexes for an FPS anymore, you can move on to a MOBA. Well, I've played, I've played a bunch of League of Legends, and I do like it. I, that's probably true. You're right. I guess it's a little less Twitch-oriented. Um, I still like Overwatch. I like playing these games, and I will play them, uh, but, I, but I don't feel as competitive anymore because I suck. So for me, it's more like the goal is like not to be at the very bottom of the leaderboard. That feels like a victory. So I'm like, okay, I beat those two dudes, and they're probably both 12. Uh, so, so that feels like a victory. That's always a victory. <laughs> beat little kids um, <laughs> so on, on, a, on a similar sort of theme then like a game has a, a game ever sort of consumed your life to the point where you've had to be like nope uh, I need to uninstall this and it's, it's clearly starting to affect my life yeah I think uh, I hate to keep up bringing games we've already discussed but I think both of the MMOs are, are qualify for that both EverQuest and WoW were games that I really uh was so heavily emotionally invested in. Uh, you know, they're, they're so all-consuming once you get enveloped in those worlds, and especially once you have friends in the world, then, it, you know, then you feel like you're, you're letting down your friends when you're not there. And there were, like, two events with, it, with WoW in particular that, that made me feel like, okay, I need to uninstall or I need an intervention. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you look around and everybody else is playing it as well. You're like, no. Yeah. Uh, and one of them was I started setting my alarm uh, in the morning so that I could get up early to play WoW before I went to work at the gaming magazine. So I would set my alarm for like 5 a.m. so that I could have like three hours before I had to go to work where I could just play WoW. And I am not a morning person. You know, so, you know, so my wife was like, oh, this is pathetic, Jeff. Um, but I felt like it was pathetic. It wasn't just her saying it. And then uh, the other the other thing was um, I started getting involved with my guild a lot in in WoW. And you know, once you're once you're doing that, and once you're doing high level events like raids, where you're talking like multiple hours. It's like appointment gaming for a day. And uh, I was on a raid with my guild on a on a, on a Sunday, and. Uh, it went on for hours, for forever, and it like bleeded over into dinner time. And I told my wife I was I was going to be playing from like one to three p.m. And you know now it's like six or seven p.m. And you know she took me aside and was like yelling at me like you know you can't do this, Jeff. Like we're we have to have dinner. And and I I was like, but I have to be here. Like you don't understand. Like the, my responsibility is I'm the main, <laughs> you know. <laughs> I'm the main wizard. Exactly. I was the main warlock. You know, they're they're counting on me for DPS. Like I've got to be here. <laughs> she has no clue what DPS stands for. 
And and she's like, you don't even know these people. Like you've never met them. They don't. They're not. And I'm like, but no, I do know who they are, and they know who I am. And if I leave now, I can't ever show my face in this guild again. But you know, with when I take a step back with a little perspective, it's like, oh my god, you know what? Actually, I mean, there's. It's not like I'm totally wrong, but really, you know, it was too much. It was that was too much. Um, it was becoming more important than my real life, um, and and that wasn't good. So I've I only ever, um, that only happens to me quite recently because I, I completely avoided World of Warcraft because I knew that's exactly what I would be like. Yep. Um, but recently, I thought I thought I started to get into Destiny because I thought, well, that's not going to be that's as it, bad. Yeah. But the when the Taken King expansion launched, there was a solid like six weeks where raiding was was my life. Yes like yeah and whole like evenings like right okay i'll come over and work and then i'm raiding so don't expect any chat or dinner or anything yeah thankfully yeah. it was short-lived though thankfully like once we beat it it's like okay wash my hands of that play other games now yeah it kind of was right it was weird how that happened i quite um, like i like that about destiny as much as people complain about the kind of the lack of of new content i like the fact that you can get all, all this new stuff, go mad for like a, a couple of weeks and then, okay, I'm done and kind of leave it for a little while. That's true. That's actually a really good attitude about that um, because I certainly played the heck out of Taken King and I loved it. I thought it was such oh, an was amazing, amazing yeah. great turnaround from the original, which I didn't dislike, but Taken King was so, so great. But yeah, then it then we all burned out and I know that there's people who complain about that and and I think you're right in a way. It, it, it was. It's nice that we don't feel married to that game, and like we must play Destiny yeah. uh, just to keep up. It's, but, I, 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 I have to feel that there is some amount of like intention on Bungie to have that as well. And because it skews a bit older, I think Destiny. Yeah, that could be. And if and if that is intentional, that that's pretty brilliant of them. I mean, I do remember in my WoW days, like I felt like every time I was playing something else. It was like cheating on a girlfriend, you know. It was like I'm supposed to be playing WoW. Like uh, I, my guild is counting on me getting this piece of armor, but instead I'm playing whatever Ratchet and Clank on my PlayStation. And oh my god, if they knew, they'd be mad. <laughs> you know? Always I, getting in trouble for playing console games. Uh, uh, yeah, and even if it was a PC game, it's like I, this is I'm supposed to play this other game, and and that was it was, it was like a responsibility, Absolutely, you know. So that yeah. was like kind of a bummer. Um, and I remember when I quit WoW, it was like so liberating. It was like, there's all these games to play now. Yay! <laughs> I have all these games I can just play without feeling guilty. Um, so, yeah. I, I have a proposal, Jeff. I, I mentioned this in, in the email, but uh, I thought like to sort of finish this off, since we've been talking yeah. about Hearthstone and stuff, do you want to play a game of Hearthstone while we're recording? <laughs> we could, I think that would be super fun. I'll, I'll try to uh, take my competitive uh, jacket off well, I, I've only got a few new new packs now. See, so I'm not I'm not fully <laughs> fully specced yet for the new expansion. Are Are you enjoying the new expansion so far? I I am. Yeah, I am. Um, I don't really know. I was quite comfortable in the old one, even though, like I've never been mm -hmm. very good at Hearthstone, I'm, I'm, and I play it like every day, probably at least a game or two. Yeah, um, it's like my before I go to bed game. Yeah, um, but I, I've never I've never got. Uh, I've never got like higher than rank like fourteen or fifteen. I think. You know what? That's about where I top out too. And I I play it obsessively, and I feel competitive in it. And yet, that's about as good as I am. 
and I've I've made my peace with that. You know, I I have. I think I it's a time thing. I, I, I've, I've told myself it's time. I think actually, there, you know, that just might be as good as I am. And, I don't uh, think so. No, I genuinely, I genuinely do think it's a, it's a time thing. I think if you can maybe. dedicate more hours to it, you will get a higher rank. Because even maybe. like the best decks have only uh -huh. got maybe a 60-70% kind of win ratio. Yeah, that's actually true. When I do read some of the, the pro players... When I read or hear them talk about, you know, them going on losing streaks, I, it makes me feel a little better, you know, and, and they say the same thing that you just have to put in the hours and that the win ra the, the ratio will, you know, eventually work itself out. But um, but what happens to me is like I'll get to somewhere like 15, 14 and then go on a losing streak and end up back at 19 and 20 and just get discouraged, you know, plus also not just not having the time to make that be a thing. Absolutely, yeah. I must get to legend. It sure would be nice, though. It would oh, be nice. It would be. I, I often think, like, maybe, like, this month, I'll just, I'll dedicate <laughs> myself to getting as high as I can. Um, yeah. It's quite fun, because I, I, it's one of the, the few games that I I will regularly watch people stream as well. Like, I find it, it's very relaxing. Um, yeah. And it's got a good community around. I don't know. It reminds, uh, there's a, a writer, Christian Donlan, writes for Eurogamer. He's an exceptionally good video game writer and he wrote uh, an article about comparing hearthstone to watching snooker and oh, that's yeah. exactly how i feel because it's not necessarily exciting or fast-paced but it's just the the predictability of it and the rhythm of it is quite hypnotic and occasionally right. you get like wild random moments that are really exciting right and and watching the thought process watching absolutely you know, yeah see their cards and like what would i do in the situation and and, you know, when you watch the great players, it's like watching a great poker player or, or anything. You're like, oh, my God, like, I never, I never would have thought of that. Like, some guy yesterday when I was playing did this, like, genius dick move to me. Like, it just ruined me. And we, I was playing Paladin, too. So we were playing the same class in the same kind of deck. But what he did to me was so smart. It lost me the game. And then I immediately changed my deck to copy him. <laughs> you know, but it was like like when you watch a great player, um, even if you're losing to one, it, it it's such a cool feeling. You know, yeah. So uh, yeah, I agree with you. That's the game I like watching streaming the most too. Just it's, it's fun to watch good people play. Yeah. Let's see. So I guess we'll have to add each other on uh, on BattleNet here, right? No. Oh, okay. 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 Um... Let's see if we could right if we do a friendly match. Yeah. Okay, so add. But it's the same as my Skype name. Oh, okay. Oh, very, very smart. I was just going to say mine right away. But I'm sure well, a lot more people would probably uh, follow me. I don't, well, I don't mind when people do. Uh, you must have got loads back in the day, though. I, I did, yeah. Um, and it's okay. That. It, it, it's fine. I don't mind when people friend me. It's nice. I'm flattered that people want to. The only people I don't friend on on uh, Hearthstone are when I beat somebody and then they friend me because I know all they want to do is bitch at me. So. I've never had that. You've never had it? Never had that, no. Wow, you're lucky. So do you accept every friend request? I don't get that many. Okay. So even when you're just playing random people, they don't friend you after the match? Uh, once or twice, maybe. And have you accepted? Uh, yeah. And they're just the random names on my friend list. Uh, right. Yeah, me too. And you're right. They're not all that way. But I've definitely gotten the hate, the hate friend request. The only, t the actually, the only game that I ever played um, 
where that happened to me, and it was on Xbox Live, was uh, Street, Fight, <laughs> Street Fighter 4. <laughs> I would always get messages after we played a game of people like abuse. Uh, maybe I just played really cheaply. <laughs> yeah. I, I've gotten the, the, the hate friend requests where you, you friend them, th- then they immediately type something, you know, something profane to you, and then immediately unfriend you before you can reply. Have you ever done that? Have I ever done that? Oh my god, no. You mean have I done that to someone? Yeah. No. Or anything but, similar to that. But I will I will admit that I've been tempted. There have been a couple of times when I've been so <laughs> mad at the player that I've had my finger poised on the add friend button. But then I think it through. I take a deep breath. I'm like, really, Jeff? Like, it's probably like an 11-year-old kid. You know, like, I'm, like, how pathetic would this be? It's a card game. Get over it. You lost. So, Did that work? Did you get a request then? It did work. Yeah. I, I oh, mean, I, I, yeah. Yeah, no, I've never, I've lost my cool to myself. I've never lost my cool to another card player. And the thing I try to always remember is if we were playing in real life, if I was a post on a, at a table, I would be completely gracious in defeat, right? You wouldn't have a babyish tantrum in real life. So don't do it on the internet, you know? It's a, that must happen, though. I'm sure there must be magic tournaments or something where somebody flips the table afterwards. In real life? Oh, I'm sure there must be, yeah. We could probably find it on YouTube. It would be fun to watch, too. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, like my kid has seen me literally throw my iPad. You know? <laughs> How stupid is that? My $800 device. I mean, it should have broken just to teach me a lesson. <laughs> I haven't done that for a, a long while, thankfully. I've been quite tempted with Dark Souls. Um, yeah. Well, you know, earlier I, on, actually, I almost did it, but I, I got over it. I, I have to say that if I wasn't streaming Dark Souls, I wouldn't play Dark Souls because I would get too angry at it because it's so hard. But playing it online in front of a bunch of people with a bunch of people, then it becomes more sort of like a group comedic experience. You know, <laughs> like, it's, like, it's more like performance art than I'm, you know trying to prove anything so i don't care and when i die i'll you know have these ridiculous horrible deaths i i can laugh at myself along with everybody else but uh interestingly when i streamed or tried to play it just this uh, a couple days ago that was the first time i ever actually did get i did lose my cool but it was because here in california it was so hot that day and our house has no air conditioning i was like literally dripping sweat before i even turned on the game so that was making me hot and cranky and tired before i even started and then a couple of people in the chat room i was suffering under this boss were like man i killed this guy in the first time and it so pissed me off like you know what what does that do for me that you're telling me it's easy <laughs> that, that i like lost my cool and was like you know what i'm not streaming anymore and i just shut the stream down so it was the one time I lost my patience. I lost, but it was it was because the game was kicking my ass and it was hard. It was hot in my room. Um, but yeah, if I wasn't streaming, I would probably have quit Dark Souls a long time ago, out of frustration. Uh, no, I've, I've I quit the first one. I never I never finished it. Um, the thing that I, I I like about Dark Souls versus other games though is, even though it's hard. I feel like it's way more fair than a lot of games that are... Oh, absolutely, yeah. 
You know, you always feel like it's your mistake in Dark Souls. Like they gave you all the information and all the tools and you just did not execute. No, absolutely. I mean, th- th- there is an occasional, like, just ridiculous yes. thing out of nowhere just kills you. Well, yes, right, where you had to die. And, like, the boss I'm trying to fight now is one of those ones where there's, like, multiple spawns. And so that's why I'm, I'm getting so angry. It's like, is that the, uh, the Abyss guys? It's the, uh, it's the Crystal Sage. This is Dark Souls 3. Oh, okay, I don't think I've got that far yet. Yeah, and, uh, you know, he's quote-unquote easy, according to some people, who I hate. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Okay, well, let's... I I think this is a neat enough way to end it. Like, I'll I'll edit it down and stuff. But uh, just in case um, there's anything we haven't talked about that you you, you wanted to mention, then please do take this opportunity to do that. Uh, I think I'm okay. I, I hope that I answered your questions adequately. Oh, you're uh, a wonderful was, guest, Jeff. I, thank you. I'm kind of a kind of a rambler. You're a lot of fun to talk to. I I, I definitely could probably do this all day, but then I would miss the second doctor's. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and that gave you into real trouble. Yeah, but I anyway. I I, I appreciate what you're doing here. I, I've listened to other shows. It, it seems like uh, you've got a really nice thing going here. Um, I, it's been a real <laughs> honestly. It's a real treat. Like this is genuinely like as much as. Um, like I was very, very true. All the stuff I said about the podcast stuff. It was really that whole experience of, of listening to the podcast weekly and being with the same group of people. You do get you are you do become the kind of extra person in the room. It's one of those weird things as well. Where yeah. you know, for, it, like speaking to you now, like I know loads about you, Jeff. Like not in a creepy sense, That's but weird, huh? I, I yeah. have this whole relationship with you that you you. you doesn't exist and lots and lots of other people do do as well yeah that, that's something i still it, it's really odd uh i i've had like random people like on the street come up and and say things to me which is just a really weird it's so flattering but it's weird especially if it's something like super personal like you know how's your dog or you know they know my dog's name or or something about my back or whatever i have to remember like oh my god i do put this all this stuff out there that's that's kind of intense um but but uh, you know, again, just like about your show, like one one, it, sometimes I I sort of lament that that we were sort of so early in the podcasting game that like you know I I wonder like oh what would it be like if we did it now or maybe we're forgotten or whatever. But it's 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 really gratifying to see so many great people doing you know doing great things with it. You know something. I'm not going to claim we started it because we certainly did not start it at all. We get no credit for that. But being early anyway, yeah, was uh, yeah. It's just different now. Like I love watching what what Giant Bomb has become. Like they're just insane. Yeah, they, I mean, there's so many, so much great sort of content, and so like it's it's so many niches within niches. Like it's it's yeah. ev- everything is served, you know. Yeah. And now all the streamers, like you said, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's, it's brilliant and, and terrifying. Not terrifying, that's the wrong word, but, um, like, uh, this has come up on the show a lot because of the, the kind of the timeline of video games, basically, and, and the age of the guests that I have on is, yeah. is the how suddenly there's... You go from playing, like, every new game that comes out, because there's not that many, to now there is definitely games coming out that I will never even hear about that could be like 
some of my yes. favorite games you know yes it's so it's, true it's, and and not just games like everything like music especially like i was always such a, a huge music fan and now I, I don't know i don't know where new music comes from i don't know where to go and find all that you know it's really it's, yeah. it's, it's scary it is scary the, the, the consumption of media is like you know our cross to bear now like it's it's impossible to get through it all like i always feel like the pressure of oh my god i gotta binge daredevil season two before luke cage and every you know how am I ever going to get to the movies when I've got all this stuff to play, then these books to read? Yeah. That's, that's a tough problem to have. Oh, yeah, no, it's, it's the yeah, very definition of a first world problem. <laughs> too much yep. entertainment. Too much entertainment. Yeah, uh, well, I'm going to be throwing this on the fire as well, Jeff, in a couple of weeks, so people can <laughs> squeeze that in amongst yes. everything else. Uh, but can... thanks again for, for your time. This, is, this has been a treat, honestly. For me too, Declan brilliant okay well i will uh, i'll speak to you soon okay take care yes you too thanks so much bye-bye okay bye-bye <laughs>